As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's difficult to say why some murderers become famous, whereas others don't. If I were to ask you who the most famous serial killer of all time is, there's a good chance you might say Ted Bundy, or maybe John Wayne Gacy, or perhaps the Zodiac Killer. But there's an even better chance you might say Jack the Ripper. If I had to pick a most famous serial killer, Jack would be at the top of my list. To the best of my knowledge, no other serial killer in history has inspired so many books, movies, TV shows, and even video games. In London's Whitechapel district in 1888, Jack the Ripper brutally murdered five women, then seemingly disappeared forever. As a result, the Ripper has attained a near-legendary status in the history of crime. Yet, just three years earlier, another serial killer stalked the streets of Austin, Texas, killing eight people in a series of crimes that were equally as brutal as those committed by the Ripper. Yet the story of the fiend, sometimes known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, is almost forgotten to history. By the end of the 19th century, the state of Texas was finally starting to re-emerge from the long, painful years of Reconstruction following the Civil War. Back during the war, the city of Austin was still the rustic cow town you'd expect to see as the backdrop to any number of cowboy movies. In 1865, the town had a population of 5,000 people, and cattle and hogs roamed the streets freely. But over the next 20 years, the city managed to reinvent itself. In 1884, Austin's population had ballooned up to 23,000 residents in what was becoming a thoroughly modern city. People rode on mule-drawn streetcars, they used party-line telephones, attended one of the three local universities, took painting classes at Miss Barber's art studio, dined at one of the fine restaurants that had opened at the city center, and took in performances at the newly refurbished Millet's Opera House. They even ate frozen treats at the local ice cream parlor, which the owner, Mr. J. Prade, created himself with a steam-driven cooling engine. Prade was a particularly ingenious individual who got the bright idea to divert some of the air from his refrigeration unit into the main building to keep his patrons cool during the sweltering summer. During the winter, electric Christmas lights were strung along the main streets, and people shopped downtown looking for just the right gift for that special someone. It was a happy time for the town, a time of relative peace and harmony, Little did anyone know that just before the new year, all that was about to come to an end. That's when the first murder occurred, and it wouldn't be the last. I'm Nate Hale, wondering what you think is the best way to dispose of a body. I'm, um, asking for a friend. And this is The Conspirators. For as modern and progressive as the city of Austin liked to portray itself, it should be pointed out that not much public attention was paid to the earliest murders, and that's because the victims were all black. 
Although African-Americans living in the city of Austin probably had better living conditions than they would in a lot of other southern cities, racism was still prevalent everywhere you went. Throughout the summer and fall of 1884, the city had been experiencing an increase in thefts and property crimes, much of which was blamed on black people. One elderly woman had a piece of wood thrown through her bedroom window, and then the robber reached in and snatched her purse off a table. A number of chicken thefts occurred, which were mostly attributed to poor black thieves who stole them to sell to other poor black residents for mere pennies. But over time, another, more disturbing series of crimes began to occur. Some unknown assailant began breaking into servants' quarters of some of the wealthier homes around town and attacking the women who lived there. In each of these cases, robbery didn't appear to be the motive. But like the chicken thieves, the local papers wrote it off as simple black-on-black crime, and the public mostly shrugged off what was going on. Toward the end of December 1884, an ice storm swept through town and dragged the thermometers down to single digits. It was bitter cold outside in the early morning hours of December 31st, with the wind howling outside like the baying of coyotes. So it was no wonder that Tom Chalmers didn't want to answer the door of his brother-in-law's house when he heard someone knocking on it in the middle of the night. Chalmers and his wife were in town visiting for the holidays. Chalmers tried to ignore the sound at first. The bed was warm, and his wife softly snored next to him. Then he heard a voice crying out, Help me! When he heard the front door open, the former Texas Ranger reluctantly got out of bed. He had no weapon with him, His gun was in another part of his brother-in-law's house. In the front foyer, he was startled to discover a shadowy figure stumbling around. He lit a match and held it before him. It was a 29-year-old black man named Walter Spencer. He was a local laborer who worked at Butler's Brickyard. Spencer was barefoot, and he was wearing a blood-soaked nightshirt. He had several large gashes in his forehead. He told Chalmers that he'd been sleeping next to his girlfriend, 23-year-old Molly Smith, who worked as a cook and maid to a local family, the Halls, when they were attacked by someone wielding an axe in the tiny one-room servants' quarters. The attacker bashed him in the skull with the axe. He wasn't sure what happened next. When he awoke, Molly was nowhere to be found. Chalmers assessed the situation and came to a decision. This was no business of his and he had no interest in traipsing outside in the bitter cold looking for a missing black girl. So he escorted Spencer out the door, and after the man was gone, he wiped the blood off the floor and went back to bed. They found Molly Smith's body the next morning, laid out in the snow with a gaping wound in her head near the servants' quarters. For five months, there were no more murders. Then another black servant girl, Eliza Shelley, who cooked for the family of a former state legislator, was killed in nearly the same manner as Molly Smith. Her young children discovered her body on the floor of the room where she'd been sleeping. The killer had nearly split her head in two with an axe. Three weeks later, another black servant was killed. This time, the murderer used a knife to kill Irene Cross. A reporter managed to interview the woman as she lay dying. He'd later describe it as if she'd been scalped. In September of that year... A servant named Rebecca Ramey was knocked unconscious while she slept. When she awoke, she discovered the dead body of her 11-year-old daughter out near the backyard washhouse. The little girl had been raped and stabbed through the ear with an iron bar. 
Next, the killer slayed Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, as they slept in a shanty near the house where Gracie worked. The killer beat Washington to death, then carried Vance to a stable on the property where he, as the Austin Daily Statesman put it, beat her head into jelly. By now, even the white-run press couldn't completely ignore the story of the series of brutal murders. The famous writer O. Henry, who at the time was living in Austin under his real name, William Sidney Porter, would go on to dub the killer the Servant Girl Annihilator. While some of the other newspapers would refer to the murderer as the Midnight Assassin. Whatever he was to be called, most of the local white population remained unconcerned about the series of crimes. It was still considered black people getting murdered by other black people at the time. Some people didn't even believe all the murders were committed by one man. There was a rather ludicrous theory going around that these were all unconnected crimes that just happened to be perpetrated by different individuals all using the exact same methods. Or perhaps it was the work of a gang of criminals. That wasn't quite as far-fetched. This being the post-Reconstruction South, the Ku Klux Klan had a strong presence in the region. The word serial killer wouldn't appear for another century, and the thought that a single individual would commit a series of such heinous acts was often thought of as ridiculous. In most of the previously mentioned cases, the servant girl's boyfriend was arrested and accused of the murder. Being as there were only a little over 2,000 black people living in Austin at the time, the series of slayings seemed like a relatively minor, if gruesome, matter to the mostly white populace. It's true that some of the earlier newspaper articles had spoken about the lack of leadership in the city in catching the killer or killers. A few articles even advocated the idea of people forming vigilante committees to do the job the police wouldn't. But nothing much seemed to come of it. That isn't to say the police were doing absolutely nothing. Bloodhounds were brought out after some of the murders, and they'd end up arresting whomever the dogs led them to. There were bloody and barefoot footprints found at some of the scenes. So if the person they rounded up wasn't wearing shoes, they'd come down hard on them and try to make them confess. Hundreds of African-American men were arrested over the course of the year. Everything changed on Christmas Eve of 1885. That's when the killer struck again and committed a pair of crimes so heinous that the public couldn't ignore them any longer. A pair of crimes that managed to send the entire city into a full-blown panic. Which is to say, the killer's next two victims were white. It was late Christmas Eve night. Students at the State Institute for the Blind had finished their annual Christmas concert. The local Presbyterian minister had given his final sermon of the evening. The shopkeepers were closing up, and the streets were beginning to thin with travelers as they headed home to settle in and prepare for Christmas morning. That's when all hell broke loose. The body of Sue Hancock was discovered in the backyard of her home by her husband Moses. Her head had been nearly split in two by an axe. The killer had also wedged some sort of sharp, thin object in her brain. Roughly an hour later, 17-year-old Eula Phillips was found murdered in the wealthiest neighborhood in the city. Her nude body was discovered in the darkened alley behind her father-in-law's home, where she'd been living with her husband and young son. Her husband Jimmy was discovered unconscious in bed, with a huge gash in his forehead. The little boy was lying next to him unharmed. The killer bashed in Eula's skull and had pinned her arms down with heavy pieces of lumber and raped her. When they were at last able to revive Jimmy, he claimed he didn't know what had happened. The last thing he'd remembered, he'd gone to bed with Eula and their young son between them. 
The next thing he knew, they were shaking him awake. Meanwhile, the public descended into chaos. Long lines stretched out the doors of every gun shop. Old soldiers hauled rusty weapons they hadn't carried since the Civil War out of storage. Some superstitious older black residents began performing rituals and burning candles to ward off evil. The newspapers spoke openly about the murders being the work of demons and monsters. On Christmas Day, more than 500 city and business leaders gathered to discuss how to stop the killings. A proposal was made to illuminate the entire city with enormous lamps. That proposal was actually put into action, and those enormous sodium lamps still exist today. Governor John Ireland made the suggestion that should another attack occur, the townspeople should set off the local fire alarms to get everyone out in the streets to track down the killer. One former Confederate general went so far as to suggest locking down the entire town and posting guards on every corner, then to stop and question every suspicious individual. But none of these extreme measures ultimately proved necessary, because after that, there were no more murders. The police chief, Grooms Lee, was the son of a prominent local politician, and he was one of the first to suggest the two murders on Christmas Eve were unconnected and were committed by a couple of jealous husbands. Lee wasn't much of a policeman, and his squad of officers weren't much better. Just the year before, the town alderman had tried unsuccessfully to have Lee impeached after it was discovered most of his officers liked to frequent the local saloons and bordellos on duty. Later on, rumors would emerge that some city money went missing, and the prime suspects were the police themselves. Mayor Robertson, recognizing that the city police force was in over its head, hired a team of private investigators to come into the city and assist Police Chief Lee. Race relations were wearing thin throughout the city during this time. The usually progressive Austin statesman ran an editorial that talked about the savagery of the black race. One night, Chief Lee strolled into the African-American saloon called the Black Elephant and dragged a patron named Alex Mack out of the building with a rope around his neck, demanding he confess what he knew about the killings. A white man named Press Hopkins saw the lynching in progress and stepped in to prevent the man from being killed. Hopkins probably saved the man's life that day. But even still, Mac was hauled off to jail and was repeatedly beaten over the next nine days. Earlier that month, District Attorney James Robertson, the mayor's brother, tried Walter Spence, the boyfriend of the first victim for Molly Smith's murder. After a two-day trial, Spence was acquitted for lack of evidence. Yet later on, after the two white women were murdered and the police's investigation led to no results, they began rounding up Spence and other black men who had previously been accused of murder all over again. The city leaders finally managed to replace Chief Lee with James Lucy, a no-nonsense former Texas Ranger. Lucy added another 50 men to the police force, and following the earlier recommendations, established an armed squad of officers throughout the city with a stop-and-frisk policy. They would ask all strangers what their business was in town, and if the answers were unsatisfactory, they were given 24 hours to leave the city. With nothing else to show for their efforts, and under mounting public pressure to show some results, Police finally arrested 23-year-old Jimmy Phillips and 50-year-old Moses Hancock in January 1886. Even the statesman was skeptical of the coincidence that these two men would both turn into murderers on the same night roughly an hour apart. But the DA pressed forward with both trials. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In the case of Moses Hancock, the only evidence they had against him was a letter they discovered written by Mrs. Hancock, in which she explained to her husband that she no longer loved him and was planning on leaving him. The evidence they had against Jimmy Phillips was a little stronger, but not much. Jimmy had a reputation as a ladies' man, and he was also known to be a violent drunk. On more than one occasion, Eula had to flee Jimmy after he threatened to kill her. By most accounts, Jimmy was abusive, and Eula had only married him after he got her pregnant. One story came out during the trial that when she found out she was pregnant for a second time, Eula went to the drugstore to purchase a mixture of different herbs that, if mixed properly, would induce an abortion. Further testimony came out that Jimmy had publicly announced on one occasion that if he ever caught Eula cheating on him, he'd kill her. Jimmy Phillips's trial was something akin to the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. Phillips came from a wealthy and prominent family, and it was considered a major scandal that he would be accused of murder. Further scandal arose during the trial when it came out that Eula had been frequenting May Tobin's house of assignation. This was a sort of discreet hotel on Congress Avenue where a man and a woman could have a secret rendezvous. Many of Austin's high-priced prostitutes stayed there, along with plenty of cheating spouses. Tobin revealed during the trial that Eula had visited her establishment on more than a half dozen occasions, the most recent of which was a brief stay on Christmas Eve, mere hours before she was murdered. It's uncertain whether Eula was meeting a lover at the hotel, or if she had turned to prostitution, which may have been her only means of making some money for her and her son to leave Jimmy and start life anew. One interesting side note, was that just before the trial began, May Tobin began talking to the DA about some of her other prominent clients. One of the most shocking names to come out of this testimony was that of William J. Swain, the twice-elected state comptroller, who was considered a shoe-in for governor in the next election. His biggest rival for the job was a man named Saul Ross, a former Indian fighter in the U.S. Army and former Texas Ranger. Ross was considered to be a weak candidate until the scandal about Swain went public. Swain was forced to go on the defensive about the accusations being made against him, and suddenly his political prospects were looking grim. He would later go on to lose the race against Ross, and he would never run for office again. Jimmy's trial took on further comparisons to the O.J. Simpson trial, when D.A. Robertson brought in one of his predecessors, E.T. Moore, to assist him. On the other side of the aisle, Jimmy Phillips' father hired the best defense team money could buy in the form of his own dream team of the well-known and brilliant lawyers William Walton and John Hancock. The prosecutors came up with a version of events that sounds more than a bit far-fetched. They claimed that Eula herself had brought the axe that killed her into the bedroom in order to protect herself from her jealous husband, Jimmy. The two of them got into a scuffle over the axe, which resulted in Jimmy's head wound. Afterwards, Jimmy managed to wrestle the axe away from Eula, which he then used to bludgeon her to death. Then he set about staging things to look like it was related to the earlier murders in what we would call a copycat killing today. In yet another moment that seems to allude to the Simpson case, in order to prove Jimmy's innocence, Walton asked his clients to take off his shoes and dip his bare feet in ink, then make a footprint on a board for comparison against a board that had been cut out of Jimmy's front porch that bore a bloody footprint. 
Jimmy's footprint turned out to be much smaller than the one left behind by the killer. And as you probably know, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The prosecution countered that Jimmy was probably carrying his wife's lifeless body at the time, causing his feet to flatten and spread out. Walton then had to have his client pick him up and make another footprint. Still, the prints didn't match. May Tobin would further claim during the trial that Eula came to her home on Christmas Eve to meet four men, two of whom were prominent young politicians. Tobin implied that Eula had been blackmailing some or all of these men, although she couldn't positively identify all of them she'd seen in Eula's company. Despite the relative lack of direct evidence that Jimmy killed his wife, the jury convicted him, and he was sentenced to seven years in prison. Six months later, the State Court of Appeals overturned his conviction. Meanwhile, the Hancock trial resulted in a hung jury after the couple's teenage daughter testified that her mother never showed her husband the letter where she said she was leaving him. Both Moses Hancock and Jimmy Phillips walked free and were never tried again. With no more victims and no more convictions in any of the arrests that had been made, the investigation into the servant girl murders dwindled away. Although hundreds of people were arrested and interrogated for the crimes, few viable suspects have ever come forward over the years. At one point, a mentally ill Mexican man and a pair of suspicious-looking brothers who were caught wearing bloody clothing in town were looked at. In 2014, the PBS show History Detectives put forth a theory that the killer was a 19-year-old black man named Nathan Elgin. In February 1886, a saloon in Masontown in East Austin would become the site of a violent incident that would bring Elgin to the public's attention. Sometime late one night, a violent altercation broke out between Elgin and a local girl. Elgin flew into a rage and dragged the girl out of the bar and into a nearby house. The girl's cries for help could be heard far and wide. The commotion caught the attention of the neighborhood, and the police were summoned. A police officer named John Bracken was the first on the scene. Bracken, along with the saloon keeper and another local, all went to the house to prevent Elgin from doing harm to the girl. The saloon keeper, the local man, and Officer Bracken got into a scuffle with Elgin. And by the time all was said and done, Bracken had pulled out his pistol and shot Nathan Elgin. Bracken's shot did not immediately kill Elgin. He clung to life before expiring the next day. When doctors examined his body, they discovered a peculiar detail, one that might tie him to the murders. Elgin was missing one of the toes on his right foot. Police knew that the footprints left behind at the scene of some of the servant girl murders also came from a person with only four toes on his right foot. Although not definitive evidence, Elgin's feet were measured and were of generally the right size to match the footprints found at the scene of the murders. So was Elgin the killer? He's certainly one of the more tantalizing suspects. He was approximately 19 years old at the time and employed as a cook in a downtown restaurant where he also roomed. His wife worked as a servant and lived separately at the home where she was employed. Elgin was born into a family of freed slaves from Arkansas. He had a couple of earlier brushes with the law as well. In 1881, he was arrested for carrying a pistol, then getting into a loud argument outside the governor's mansion. In 1882, he sent a threatening letter to a local deputy, where he threatened to whip, destroy, and kill the man the next time they met. Although none of this is definitive proof of the man's guilt, Perhaps the best evidence that he may have been the murderer was the simple fact that the killing stopped right around the time he died. But the fact is, we'll never know for sure whether he was the right man or not. 
There's another possible suspect that was speculated about in the Austin Statesman. A mysterious Malaysian cook named Maurice worked in the Pearl House Hotel in town. Not a lot appears to be known about the mysterious Maurice, but something about him caught the attention of the statesman because they actually ran an article speculating about the man's guilt. It's what the man may have done after he left Austin that some people have claimed points toward an even more horrifying fate. In January 1886, Maurice informed people that he was going to be leaving town and settling in England. This would have been only a few weeks after the servant girl murders ended. According to some people who have studied the case, Maurice did ultimately reach England. And not long after that, none other than Jack the Ripper claimed his first victim. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Special thanks need to go out to a couple more of my Patreon supporters. Thanks to Kimberly, Eunice, and Alex S. for all pledging their support. You too can become a Patreon supporter and get access to all sorts of great rewards including t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and exclusive Patreon-only bonus episodes. I have a great story coming up at the beginning of July you won't want to miss. I'll post a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Thanks as well to all of you who have taken the time to leave me a review on iTunes. Your reviews help boost my show in the iTunes rankings, as well as provides me valuable feedback on what I'm doing. I wanted to mention a couple of other podcasts I love that if you're a fan of my show, you'd probably dig as well. First, there's History Goes Bump. I've been listening to this show for years. Your hosts, Diane and Denise, take you on your own virtual ghost tour of some of the most haunted places around the country as well as give you some really interesting facts about the history of the region. Next, I'd like to recommend a newer podcast that I've been binging because it's so consistently good, and that's not alone. The hosts Sam and Jason are a perfect pairing of true believer and skeptic in the world of the strange and paranormal, and together they delve into some of the strangest things that have ever happened around the world. They just did an episode about the strange disappearances around Africa's Mount Niangani, And there's an amazing and freaky story they tell about mermaids you have to hear for yourself. That's right, I said mermaids. Trust me. As for my own show, we're always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, iTunes, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon.